0: section thirty eight of life of john churchill duke of marlborough by louise Creighton. this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter eighteen last days of marlborough part one after his dismissal marlborough's position in england became daily more intolerable the ministry determined to bring a suit against them for fifteen thousand pounds the sum which he had received by deducting two and a half per cent from the pay of the foreign troops they also encouraged the contractors for the buildings at blenheim to sue him for the arrears amounting to thirty thousand pounds due for the works both the duke and the duchess had always been very careful not to take upon themselves any of the debts contracted at blenheim and had allowed the works to be suspended rather than pay the workmen themselves Ministers who paid no heed to the honor of their nation in their dealings with foreign countries could not be expected to care for it in their dealings with a fallen political opponent, and so they did not mind saying that Marlborough himself must pay for works which had been undertaken as a free gift from the nation to him. So the buildings at Blenheim were left unfinished for a time, and the Duke could have little hope of being able to finish his days there as he had so often wished to do the death of his tried friend godolphin severed the last tie which kept him in england pressed by his enemies on every side he determined to seek a little peace abroad he got a passport from oxford allowing him to go wherever he liked and sailed from dover on november twenty eighth seventeen twelve abroad men had not learned to look upon the great general as a coward and a thief A salute of artillery greeted him as he entered the harbour of ostend and the garrison was waiting under arms to conduct him to the house which had been prepared to receive him at antwerp where he next went he was met by the governor outside the walls and greeted by the enthusiastic shouts of the people he tried by choosing the most private roads to avoid attention but it was impossible for parties of horse paraded the roads to offer their attendance and during his whole journey to Aix-la-Chapelle, crowds flocked from every side to see him and pay him honour as their deliverer. He stayed some time quietly at Aix-la-Chapelle, until, alarmed by hearing of a plot to seize him, he went to Maastricht, where he was joined by the Duchess, who had stayed behind in England to arrange their affairs. They went together to Frankfurt, where they stayed some time in may marlborough made an excursion to his principality of mindelheim where he was received with great honours when he got back to frankfort he heard that the malice of his enemies had discovered more charges against him of peculation and he at once drew up a refutation which he sent to england meanwhile all through the winter the negotiations for peace had continued and at last on the thirty first of march seventeen thirteen peace was signed at utrecht by france and spain with england and all the other allies except austria by this peace spain and the west indies were left to philip v who renounced solemnly his claim to the french crown louis xiv promised to acknowledge anne and the protestant succession and to demolish the fortifications of dunkirk england was to keep gibraltar and minorca and also gained from france certain territories in North America, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Hudson's Bay territories. From Spain, England obtained the Asiento Contract, the right which France had formerly possessed of importing for thirty years 4,800 Negroes annually into America. This was the article about which the English were most keen. In this shameful manner, they hoped to recoup themselves for the expenses of the war lille and the other towns on the frontier were given back to france and the spanish netherlands was given to the dutch republic to be relinquished to austria after the conclusion of a barrier treaty the duke of savoy received sicily which was afterwards exchanged for sardinia austria tried to carry on the war alone But the next year, peace was signed at Rostadt between Eugene and Villars, by which Austria retained her possessions in Italy, Naples, Sardinia, and Milan. The frontiers of the empire were left as they had been before the war. These were all the advantages gained by the Allies for a war which had lasted eleven years, during which they had won a series of unequalled successes and humbled the great power of France to the dust this miserable result was due mainly to the conduct of oxford and bolingbroke and their influence over the queen and the political parties in england aided by the cleverness of louis the fourteenth in taking advantage of the state of affairs in this country the whole course of the war shows how disastrous is the influence of purely party government upon foreign policy it is clear that peace should have been concluded after the battle of romilies when france was willing to grant the allies any terms they could reasonably demand but the war was prolonged partly to suit the interests of the whigs and partly on account of the great distrust felt by marlborough eugene and hensius for louis xiv at last peace was made to suit the interests of the tories who were led by party feeling treacherously to desert their allies and make friends with louis the fourteenth even whilst still at war with him in making peace they gave up almost everything for which they had been fighting we cannot blame them for giving up the intention of continuing the war until spain was wrested from the hands of philip and made over to austria time had shown that philip had gained a firm hold upon the affections of the spaniards and to fight for the purpose of taking away from a people a king whom they adored and imposing upon them one whom they despised would have been an absurdity which could never have been crowned by success besides circumstances had arisen which would have made it more dangerous to the security of europe for charles to rule in spain than for philip time also showed how vain was the fear that the strength of france would be increased by the accession of a bourbon prince to the spanish throne louis Fourteenth had considerable influence over philip but he found it hopeless to govern spain from france philip had become a spanish king and cared more for the interests of spain than for those of france but though it was clear that spain must be left to philip some care should have been taken for the interests of the catalans who had fought devotedly for charles and were abandoned without a word to the vengeance of the spanish government equally incomprehensible is the way in which all the advantages gained by the allies on the northern frontier of france were given up and an opportunity for reducing the immoderate power of france was hopelessly lost even more shameful than the peace itself Is the manner in which it was concluded the secrecy the treachery to all the allies and the utter disregard of the honour of the nation we can well imagine the bitter feelings of the duke of marlborough as he heard at frankfort of the conclusion of the negotiations and the news which he received from england caused him still further anxiety in the summer he had removed to antwerp both to be nearer home and to be out of the way of the hostilities between france and the empire and here he watched with anxiety the course of events in england both oxford and st john now viscount bolingbroke were intriguing with the pretender who had been allowed to remain in lorraine after the peace of utrecht the queen was supposed herself to be inclined to favour the cause of her brother she was repeatedly ill her death might occur at any moment and no one could feel sure of what would happen afterwards. Under these circumstances, Marlborough and the Whigs drew closer to the House of Hanover, and Marlborough entirely adopted their cause, partly no doubt from motives of sincere patriotism, partly because matters had gone too far between him and the Tories for there to be any hope of reconciliation. The electress Sophia of Hanover died in 1714. She had always rather inclined to the Tories, but she had had great confidence in the Duke of Marlborough. On her death, her son the Elector showed without reserve that he intended to make common cause with the Whigs. The Jacobite plotters grew busier and busier. Oxford was looked upon as too slow and not zealous enough. The Queen was growing tired of him, and Bolingbroke had managed entirely to gain her ear. Oxford was dismissed and bolingbroke hoped to bring his jacobite plans to a successful issue but at this moment and before a new treasurer could be appointed the queen fell seriously ill marlborough so keenly shared the general anxiety that he determined to come to england so as to be on the spot to aid the cause of the elector should any disturbance occur at this critical moment shrewsbury who had always vacillated between the two parties for once acted firmly, and by so doing secured the Protestant succession. a number of influential men waited upon the Queen in one of her last moments of consciousness and persuaded her to name him Lord Treasurer, to the consternation of Bolingbroke and his party. The Whig Privy Councillors showed great energy, troops were called out, and every possible measure taken to prevent a Jacobite rising in the end everything went off quietly anne died early on the morning of the first of august and the elector was immediately proclaimed george i the duke of marlborough had begun his journey to england some time before the duchess was delighted for she declared that she would rather die in a cottage in england than in a palace abroad on his way from antwerp to ostend marlborough avoided passing through ghent so as not to attract attention but the chief magistrates came out to meet him on the road and prepared a very handsome breakfast for him and his suite in a little village at which one of their ladies did the honours the news of his journey caused a great deal of commotion prior wrote to bolingbroke we are all frightened out of our wits upon the duke of marlborough's going to england whilst the whigs were delighted he landed at dover on the very day of the queen's death and was warmly received the guns were fired in his honour and the mayor and an enthusiastic crowd came to meet him as he landed on his way to london he was much mortified to learn that neither he nor lord sunderland were among the lords justices who had been named to govern england until the king could arrive this slight was partially made up for by the reception he met with on entering london the member for southwark came out to meet him at the head of two hundred gentlemen on horseback and was followed by a long train of carriages containing the duke's friends and relations so escorted he entered the city amidst the shouts of the people and drove to his house in Pellmell. he appeared afterwards at the house of lords but soon retired to hollywell house where the hanoverian agents visited him and tried by apologies to make up for his not having been named a lord justice He declared that he was firmly resolved never to take any office under government again. The Duchess says that she begged him on her knees never to accept any employment, and he retired to Bath. End of section thirty eight.